This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Justice Department is the latest in a small but growing number of agencies who are detailing plans for employees to return to their offices. Justice updated its workforce safety plan last week, where it outlined new details about vaccination requirements and testing, about face masks and physical distancing, and about reporting, contact tracing, and continuous monitoring. Federal News Network's executive editor Jason Miller joins me now to talk about DOJ and some other plans to get people back to the office. Jason, let's start with the Justice Department itself. What is it expecting of employees as they ostensibly return to the office? What Justice did is they updated their really return to work plans in many, or their workforce safety plan is a better term for it. From February 2021, they updated it just last week, so February 2022. And you know, this plan, while it does not have specific timelines, does not say employees will return by X date, they do talk about what they should expect when they do return to the office, and they are going to return soon. I think we're seeing that across the government as agencies really see that Omicron is going down and it's more comfortable to return to an office space. But Justice Department specifically, Tom, they looked at across a wide range of issues. They talked about the vaccination requirement. We know recently, Tom, an appeals court in Texas did not overturn the initial judge's ruling for the vaccination requirement for federal employees. So we're still waiting for that to work through the court system. But in the meantime, they talked about routine screening. They talked about what visitors should expect, both contractors and regular visitors to the office. They talked about traveling, events meetings, whether you need to wear face masks and physical distancing, as well as things like isolation, quarantine, hygiene, confidentiality, even continuous monitoring. How are you feeling today? How are you feeling tomorrow? So they really do cover quite a bit, Tom, in this new plan. And what I think is important about this is they're they're trying to balance the requirements of having folks back in the office at the same time, understanding that maximum telework is important. It, It can be done in the right settings, as well as following local because, you know, Justice Department spread across sure. the, the, the country following local ordinances and rules and, and really paying attention to what spikes are happening when and where and where different communities are with dealing with COVID-19. And there's also a lot of discretion on the part of the politically appointed U.S. attorneys, too. They run their offices as well as are the top lawyers so they can have their own rules. And I think that's what you see from place to place. It may not be uniform. And justice has the lowest vaccination rates or among the lowest across all of the agencies. What a world when we measure that kind of stuff. But what percentage of their people are not vaccinated? What does that mean for those people as they try to get back? It's just over 8% of these employees are not vaccinated, which was a little surprising to me because obviously uh, the folks in the Justice Department, they're, they're, they follow rules. They, they do a good job. They're, they're a lot of them are lawyers, right? A lot of them are law enforcement officers. So it's interesting that, that such, it's such a high rate. Now, they are among the lowest. Based on uh, OMB data from December, what we're seeing is the number of agency, the number of federal employees who aren't vaccinated uh, really is, is around certain areas like the agriculture department, for instance, 88%. Veterans Affairs was 88%. Homeland Security, 89%. So justice was right around 90%. According to the spokesperson I talked to, they're up to about 92%. But what this means is that, that the folks who are not vaccinated will have to kind of be subject to routine testing. And that was a big issue. Initially, they could do self-tests. And I heard from a Justice Department source who sent me the latest email from the management division to all the Justice Department components and agencies and basically said, we're changing the testing requirements. It used to be you could do a self-test and report back your results. Now you need an independent third party to to verify your test. So that, that means, Tom, if you or I work at the Justice Department and we're not vaccinated, we would need to get on, for instance, a, a video call with a third party telehealth specialist who would watch me 
do my test, make sure I didn't you know, mess with my testing in any way and, and, and see the results. Or they would have to be another kind of third-party person, doesn't necessarily have to be a telehealth, but an independent third-party who are paying attention to this. Now, they also told me that employees who are not vaccinated are responsible for obtaining the tests on their own. Uh, you know, there are going to be some resources located uh, from, from testing providers to employees who need it, but consistent with the Safer Federal Task Force guidance, the department will reimburse employees where, where testing is required under this policy and when testing is done on duty time. So, so I think that's a, it's also a little surprising that they are saying, one, we need that third party to approve that fact you've done it right. And second, though, we will pay for it and give you time away from work if need be. And maybe they can call on Nathaniel Hawthorne and give a big red V to the people that have been vaccinated. And then everyone will know who's who. And what about some of the other agencies? We know about Social Security. They, they're they pretty public with their plans. What else are we hearing? Tom, there's not a ton that we're hearing across the government about new agencies putting out plans to, to say, hey, well, this is our expectation. When I touch base with uh, AFGE and NTU and, and NEFI and some others, they're not saying, well, we're in the middle of negotiations or, or the collective bargaining piece has kicked in yet. We know that Social Security Administration has reached an agreement back on January 19th, and employees are starting to come back into the office sometime at the end of March. We also know that the IRS is really getting a lot of pressure to bring employees back. I think they're uh, in, in some sort of discussions as well of, of how to make that happen. We know the Office of Management and Budget, Shalanda Young, who's the nominee to be director of OMB, testified last month about bringing people back into the office. She said that we're one of those agencies who are trying to figure that out. But she said this is difficult, and, and this is something that the variant really threw some some challenges into the reopening plans. But agencies, you know, back in June were required to have plans to bring employees back to the office. They were supposed to set tentative reentry dates. It's unclear where those plans are right now and how much many need to be updated. And then finally, Tom, we also know that the Agriculture Department is bringing employees back. They have a phased-in plan coming, and so we'll see how that works out over the next couple weeks and months. But I think, Tom, a lot of agencies are going to start asking and making plans to bring employees back to the office. But it seems like, uh, obviously, the Biden administration is still a big supporter of telework, and I don't think that's going to change. So I think it's going to be some, again, hybrid workforce we hear all the time. And very quickly, there's some growing frustration on Capitol Hill about federal employees continuing to telework or remote work. There's been several bills introduced, both in the Senate and the House side, mostly by Republicans, or I should say probably all by Republicans. The latest one comes from Congressman Andy Biggs from Arizona. He, again, is a Republican who introduced the Return to Work Act. And in his bill does a lot of the things that you expect to say employees need to come back. There's a lot of challenges with employees working remotely. But what he wants to do in this bill specifically is turn the clock back to December 2019, really before the pandemic, and say we want to put those telework policies that were in place in December 2019 back into place today. And he has you know a lot of Republican support for it, about eight or nine other lawmakers who are saying they've signed on to be co-sponsored to the bill. Tom, I think one of the things that's interesting is going back to December 2019, it's kind of the genie's been let out of the bottle. Why is he trying to stuff that genie back in the bottle? It's unclear about why he believes that was the perfect time. Sure. I think generally people agree that telework has a lot of other benefits beyond the individual employee. But at the same time, it's clear that lawmakers want the IRS, the SSA, people who work with citizens every day to be back in the office. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. And check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on 
bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at. I quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am 
try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on What does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the the, probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Anyone else have trouble sleeping last night and the night before that? Same. And I've tried everything, but it either doesn't help me sleep so I'm cranky and tired the next day, 
or I sleep, and then I'm drowsy the next day. Luckily, Seize the Night and Day is here. Go to SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more about insomnia and how you can seize the night. And Carpe the DM. Make their mission your mission, because they will not rest until we all rest. What will it take to conserve 10 billion acres of ocean, 1.6 billion acres of land, and over 600,000 miles of river? What will it take to protect and restore natural habitats in over 70 countries around the world and in all 50 states here at home? What will it take? You. Together, we will make it happen. It's in our nature. See how your gift can help at nature.org. The Nature Conservancy. Protecting nature. Preserving life.